The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, guys. Hey, before I get going with announcements, I found some keys. And um, from the looks of it, I think you might have a nicer car than me. So, um, so here's what's going to Sam, would you uh, do me a favor? And you shop a lot. Look at all those member cards. Wow. I don't have that one. I don't have that one. Do you have that one? Do we need that? I'll take that one. We could go there after church, right? Never mind. We didn't find anything today. You're fine. Just hang, hang on to that. Uh, those keys will be at the sound booth there if, you, if that's you. Um, hey, guys, do me a favor. Grab your Bibles. And this week, we will, in fact, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. If you weren't here last week, you don't know what that means. And you don't know why the teaching's not online. And don't worry about it. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I have a couple of announcements before we get going. Um, First of all, uh, ladies' Christmas celebration is December 13th, 630 to 8. Ladies of all ages are welcome, even the young ones. Um, bring a dessert to share and an unwrapped baby gift. Um, reservations are needed. We're looking for 25 gals to volunteer and host a table. No child care is provided that night, but signups do start today. So we need volunteers to help put all that together. And we need uh, people to actually attend the thing that we're putting together. So you can uh, either, I'm assuming, get signed up online. Heritagefellowship.net is our website. Or you can stop by the information table um, on your way out today. Also, um, Joys and Toys, our, our, our annual Christmas program that's designed to help uh, the less fortunate here in the Valley is underway. Um, every Sunday and Wednesday from November 8th till December 6th, there's a Christmas tree and stocking ornament thing. You can grab that, buy whatever's on the thing, bring it back to us before the deadline. And uh, it's just a great way for us as a church to reach out to, um, to needy families and children here in the Valley. Um, we also accept cash and check donations to go towards the program as well. If you just don't have time to shop or don't like to shop or whatever. Um, so, or want to do both, that'd be fine too. Um, if you have any questions, you can contact Jessica Winnie or Again, just stop at the information table on the way out. Also, uh, it is the season, right? So Thanksgiving, we do, uh, we do food baskets for Thanksgiving every year. And we'll be doing that this year. So um, also, there is a flyer out there where you can actually pick up and purchase some of the things that go into the Thanksgiving baskets. You can also, um, I encourage you, if you know a family that would really benefit, um, just really be blessed um, this Thanksgiving season by, by an opportunity for us to be able to reach out, to be able to share the gospel and share practical needs like that. Please let us know. Call us at the office or email us or something like that. Um, we would love to be able to just bless um, as many people as we can this Thanksgiving as a way of showing God thanks for the things that he's blessed us with. Amen. Um, and then uh, Saturday night worship is this coming Saturday night, November 14th. This is the last one for the year. So make sure you join us. We actually do that over at the hub. That's our building that you see when you come pulling in over here. Junior high kids are in there right now, but we have kind of a mini sanctuary, if you will, over there. And it's just a great night to come in and just, um, just worship the Lord. So this Saturday night at seven o'clock, this is the last one for this year. So make sure you join us. And then one last thing, and uh, um, I'd appreciate you praying about this as well. Do you guys remember when we had um, Jeff Gilbert here with Save the Storks? Do you guys remember that? The, uh, it's, it's this outreach program that um, basically builds these buses or vans. It's those Mercedes buses. You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about, real European slant nose looking kind of things. Um, they outfit those with um, basically a mobile examination unit um, that does ultrasounds. 
And what they are doing all over the nation is literally parking these things, not just at different events or festivals or whatever that go on, but, but in places they'll park them literally right across the street from places that do abortions. And they offer free um, ultrasounds to women who are actually coming to places like Planned Parenthood and stuff for um, abortion appointments. And what they're finding is that um, four out of five women that come into that van and see the ultrasound of their baby before going into their appointment at Planned Parenthood skip the appointment, keep their child, and are, they're able to then connect them with local pregnancy resource centers. And in some cases, no joke, here in, the na- in, in our country, they have literally caused abortion clinics to go out of business because no one was coming in. Yeah. Um, and, and here's what I love about that. Like so much of what the church has done historically with regards to, to an issue like abortion tends to, to be protest in nature. It's about against this, but not as often uh, able to find good ways to actually reach out to the people that are struggling through these things and, and even young women that may not feel like they even have any other options. And this is a fantastic way of not being known so much about what we're against, but about reaching out to people that are hurting and helping them through life in a very gospel-centered way. Well, um, I have some really cool news to share with you guys. If you remember, um, Jeff was here and, and a lot of you uh, did some sponsorship stuff through Save the Storks, and then we had that really crazy travesty where he was actually literally car broken into, robbed, and so some of you guys who signed up for um, sponsorship stuff, that stuff was taken, and, and so I, r- I really hope you didn't allow Satan to derail what God was putting on your heart. If you haven't gotten back in there and, and, and figured out how to re-up with that, I encourage you, go to Save the Storks, I think it's .com or .org, but just we have Google. We don't need any of it, right? Just save the storks. Please support them. But, but here's what's really cool that's happened since then. Um, so as we were able to connect, because we knew Jeff Gilbert, we connected Jeff with the local Pregnancy Resource Center. And that's Cindy Bright, who's the uh, director there here in Medford. And, and we started talking with her and Jeff, because he's from here, and us, because we work with them. We were just like, what if we had one of those buses here in Medford? What would that look like? And how, how hard would that be to pull off? I know you're nationwide. And I'm sure you've got bigger areas and bigger cities and all this going on. But, but how could we do that? And as we started talking, it's just like the Lord just started doing stuff. And things just started coming together. And so we started talking about the finances of it. And Jeff was talking with Cindy. And then Cindy's talking with some of the board members from the Save the Storks campaign. And, and then they happened to have conversations with some people who are supporters and all this kind of stuff. And as we started looking about this, this is what is crazy that's happened. Someone came through, one donor came through in the last month and has made a $125,000 matching donation to the Pregnancy Resource Center to get one of those vans put here in Medford full-time. That's an amazing thing, right? It's an amazing thing. Now, this is what they're doing. That it's matching funds. And the idea is this. They want to buy the bus, but they don't want to buy the bus and then find out that the, the resource center doesn't have the funds to actually staff it and use it, and then it just sits in a parking lot all the time. So the challenge then goes to us in the Valley to raise an additional matching, if you will, $125,000 that will allow this to not only exist here, but operate and be able to do this kind of ministry. So um, just be in prayer, if you would, for the resource center. Um, this Tuesday at five o'clock, if you're interested, they're having an open house over at the resource center, and one of the 
those buses from another city um, is actually coming up and going to be parked there for the day. You can kind of go through and tour it and see what they're doing. And they're going to actually sign the papers. Um, They already got 10,000 of that matching donation donated in so that they can go ahead and start the process of getting that bus built. And, And they're officially signing papers on Tuesday night and moving forward in faith as we all reach out. I'm meeting with a whole group of pastors Tuesday afternoon to tell them and the other churches about what's going on. And so pray for me and pray for them if you would on that. But we want to see the valley really come together and make this thing happen. And I was talking to Jeff on the phone just like two days ago. And he said that, um, I was like, so what kind of time frame are we talking about? It's probably like a year or something like that. He's no, like three, four months. And so we're just really excited about what's going on there. So if you would, keep that in prayer. Maybe pray about how you could come alongside and, and make donations to the local resource center for this particular project. But um, there's no way we're letting 125 grand fall away, right? We've got to raise that money. So uh, um, pray for us, even as a church, as we as a board talk about with, with regards to our own church's involvement, how to support this stuff. Just really excited about all that. And hey, come by. The resource center is kind of behind Costco back there. Tuesday at 5 o'clock, open house. Come meet us over there and kind of check out what those guys are doing. Meet Cindy. Um, these buses or these vans, whatever you call those things, they're just awesome. And I'm really excited about that. Amen? So if you would, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. One of these fine gentlemen will make sure that you get one so you can track along with us. Make sure I'm not making this stuff up as I'm up there, or at least most of it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's a gift. Just take that with you, and I pray that that will serve you to a great degree to help you learn more about not just who God is, not just who Jesus is, but his will for your life as well. Last week, we took a bit of a diversion, just a little. This week, we're going to continue on here in Ephesians chapter 4. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 16, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. Ephesians 4, verse 7 through 16, it says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried out about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us understanding and clarity of your word here. Not just, Lord, some history lesson. Definitely not just some moral tale. But God, we understand that this book, these are the supernatural and amazing words of our creator, God, king of the universe to us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that even as we bow our heads in prayer right now, may our stature as we approach this scripture be the same, bowed before you, submitted to your word, willing to hear what our King has for us, and willing, Lord, to allow by your Spirit these things to apply to our lives. But, Lord, I'm thankful that we don't have to just do this out of fear, but that, Lord, this is a, this is a continuing act of worship. The song may be over, but we can continue to worship you, Lord, in these things because you've been so good to us that you would send your son to die for our sins, to pay the price of our failures and our rebellion, that you would adopt us, that you would call us your sons, that you would destine us for eternity. You've been so good to us. How can we not, Lord, give you the time and attention you deserve? So I pray, God, that things that might be distractions might be bound, Lord, that you would give us clarity, energy, that we'd be awake, attentive, focused on what you have for us, and that, God, your church might grow, that we might grow, even as this text says, into mature followers of Christ, that we might look more like you tomorrow than we did yesterday. And we just pray these things, Lord you would just move and speak and teach us. So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my rock, my redeemer in Jesus name. And all God's people said, amen. So I used to be an engineer. Some of you guys know that. I went to school to do some engineering. I, I worked when I was in North Carolina. I actually worked in the department of transportation and did highway engineering Moved out here to Oregon in, in civil engineering, which was that that I had the experience in. There wasn't a whole lot of it that I could find work in when I moved here in 98. And so um, after looking around, I found a job in Grants Pass in architectural engineering. Had no experience whatsoever. Didn't know anything that I was doing there and, and just dove into it. And I, I literally went to an interview after months of not getting work everywhere I went. And I just was that cocky guy that was like, you have to hire me. You're a fool if you don't hire me. You're going to regret it if you don't hire me. And the guy just somehow stupidly said okay and so I had to learn this whole new field and what I ended up becoming as I was doing engineering is I became what's called a project manager. Project manager meant I don't always do all the nuts and bolts of every little job. I didn't build anything. I didn't do the main drawings for the architectural drawings and all that kind of stuff. I was the overseer of all of these things. And so I would have anywhere from 10 to 20 projects going at any given time all up and down the west coast. And, and it would be, we had jobs for Nike, we built hospitals, we built prisons, we built schools. It was big projects. And it was a good job. It paid well, it had a good future. They, were, they wanted me to kind of take over for them. I was the youngest project manager they'd ever had. And, and I, there was a 20 year gap between me and any other guy that was working in that sort of level of this particular company. And so they talked about like grooming me to take over the company. But there was a problem. I hate math. <laughs> Think about that. I'm an engineer, project manager, in charge of jobs that are millions of dollars, massive projects, and I hate math. I'm not good at math. I'm not naturally gifted at math. I'm, I was good with words. I could schmooze. That's how I got the job in the first place. I could work with other people. I was good at communicating with different liaisons and owners and architects and all these kind of things. And I could smooth over arguments, which they always have in the construction world. I, I mean, I could do all of that kind of stuff. But the two things I was really bad at, I hated math 
really three things. I hated math. I hated sitting all day staring at a computer screen, which is a lot of it. And and the other thing is, is I'm not a detail-oriented guy. I'm just not. I'm a big picture guy, which on one end works well with the project management stuff, but it tends to be little oversights that cost you a lot of money, especially in jobs like that. And so, so I was okay, but I hated it. And I struggled with it. It caused me all sorts of stress. I'm just not that kind of guy. I was actually even just talking with my wife this week that I actually think I'm even getting worse at that kind of stuff as I grow up. I'm pretty sure, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that the last time I mowed the lawn at my house and took the grass catcher off the lawnmower and went to the green bin where you dump the grass, I'm pretty sure I put the bag catcher in there too. Because it's gone. I went to mow the lawn yesterday, no grass catcher anywhere. So someone either had a really weird burglary event one night and they came into our yard and drift boat, things like that. Forget all that. I want the, I want the grass catcher. Either that or I threw away the grass catcher for our lawnmower. I'm, I'm not positive. No clue. I'm, I'm just not that detail-oriented guy like that. My staff is all laughing because they're going, yep. Now, The question then becomes, okay, so Jeff, why in the world did you become an engineer? Why would you ever even study engineering in the first place? Why? The answer to that's actually pretty easy, pretty simple when I look back. I didn't know who I was. I didn't spend any time actually sitting. When I was in, when I was in high school and I was applying to colleges and thinking about what I was going to do, I never spent one ounce of time thinking about who am I, what am I good at, and what careers out there actually match that. What I did was, well, I, I know I can do this stuff here, and, and I've got a little bit of experience with it because my dad worked in that world, and I had worked with him some when I got older, and so I guess I'll just do this. And I just did that. No career counseling, no one talking to me about the fact that, like, Jeff, engineering is all math. You hate math. You don't even know the calculus world. Wait till you get to differential equations and thermodynamics. You're going to want to kill yourself. Why would you do this? Never even crossed my mind. Never once until years later, a couple of decades later, did it occur to me, like, this just isn't who I am. That's an important thing to understand. Who you are should to some degree determine what you do. How God's built you, how God's gifted you, things he's made you good at. And I look back now and I can look back through school and through all those things. And you know what I was really good at? Writing. I was good at history. I was good at humanities and all these kind of things, but I'd never taken the time to even notice any of that. And it was like, hey, engineers make money. I'm gonna need some of that. Let's do that. Who you are determines what you do. Well, that's the theme of the book of Ephesians, at least where we are now. Paul spends the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians on identity. This is who we are. This is what God has done for us. This is who we were, but because of what Christ has done, here's who we are now. And we have this incredible, deep, thorough picture and definition of the gospel. It tells us who we were is those who had rebelled against God. 
That from the very first man until us every single day, we have willfully rebelled against God over and over and over. We have sinned against him. We have elevated ourselves above God. We choose our own will, our own desires. It takes all sorts of forms. We've spent a lot of time on that, but we have rebelled against God. And because of that, it's ruined everything. We were created for fellowship with God and and harmony and shalom, peace with God. And we've blown all of that when sin entered into the world. So, So now we're separated from God. We're in rebellion against God. We're destined towards an eternity apart from God. But the scriptures say that Jesus Christ entered into our situation. That's what you hear the word sometimes, incarnation. That Jesus incarnate, he came to us. He understood where we were, who we were, where we were headed. And Jesus himself came to earth, the form of a man, became man and dwelt among us. There he lived the perfect life that we couldn't possibly live. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of the punishment, all of the blame, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the wrath of God towards man's sinful rebellion upon his shoulders. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death and Jesus died on the cross for us in our place. But then on that third day, the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, showing his power over it. Didn't just pay the penalty for us, but defeated this enemy that is always after us ascended into heaven. And the Bible says now that he sits at the right hand of God and he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And that those who have put their faith in him, not in their own efforts, in their own energies, but put their belief and their faith in him and his work and his sacrifice to cover for our sins, that we have now been adopted into the family of God. Ephesians makes this really clear. We were isolated. We are adopted. We were in sinful rebellion. We are now in the righteousness of Christ. God looks at us now as if those sins never even occurred. He sees Jesus when he looks at us now. That's what the Bible means when it says that we are in Christ. It means that when, Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our record. He sees that of Christ on our behalf. And because of that, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus. That means that Jesus, the son of God, and everything that he would stand to inherit, if you will, from God the Father, we now have right to just as well. It's insane. It's incredible. This is who we are. We're not, we're not fallen, broken. We are standing, saved sons and daughters of God. Not one, not one amen anywhere in the whole room. Well, forget it now. You missed your shot. It's your chance. This is who we are now. And that's the first three chapters. We spent months on it, but that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. But now in chapter four, he's going into, in light of that reality, because of who we are, what do we do? What does this look like for us? And today we're going to be talking about what's referred to as the spiritual gifts. Sometimes as soon as you mention spiritual gifts, people get a little uncomfortable. When you start to talk about spiritual gifts, and, and we're not going to dive into a ton of detail about all of them. We did that actually when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 previously. We'll just do a quick 30,000 foot flyover to kind of see what the scriptures are talking about. But a lot of times when you talk about spiritual gifts, people get really nervous because we've seen all sorts of weirdness in areas. It gets taken out of context in some places. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, a lot of times we focus so much on the supernatural part that we forget and ignore some of the just basic 
basic, like the natural or seemingly natural things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And there can be a, a whole lot of confusion about all these things. But, but today what we're going to actually talk about is how does this idea of gifts and spiritual gifts play out in the context of this particular passage? What is the context of this particular passage? It's the body. He says that, and we spent time on this, you may remember, that now that we've been saved, he's built what he's called his church. Now, this is not an organizational thing. It doesn't mean he built the organization of heritage or the building or any of that. It means that he has brought this group of people together and we are the body of Christ. That's the reference. And the idea is that there's different people. We look different. We act different. We're gifted differently. But we are, and this is the thrust of the first six verses of chapter 4, we are unified in Christ. Look what he says in verse five or verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And what we talked about when we went through this was the idea that God desires even commands that followers of Jesus are to be unified. Jesus even prays it in his own prayer before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17. He says that we might be one as he and the Father are one. He wants us to be unified under the headship of Jesus Christ. And the analogy that is used and very intentionally used is that of a body. We are the body of Christ, arms, legs, everything together to build this one body. And now we're going with that idea in, and now we're going and we're talking about spiritual gifts. You say, well, Jeff, this is new to me. I don't understand what you're talking about, about spiritual gifts. And what, what does that even mean? Well, it's really interesting. In verses 8 through 10, there's this, this passage here. It says, therefore it says, or verse 8 is talking about the scriptures. Therefore the scriptures say... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul here is quoting a passage out of Psalms. It's Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a passage that is celebrating the liberation of a city that had been taken captive by an enemy. And so the idea is this. This conquering king goes out and fights this battle and wins the battle. It sets this city free. There's a Jebusite thing going on in that passage in Psalm. But Paul's using it here as an analogy, if you will, to tell a story for us. This king goes and fights an enemy and it sets these people free. And now the king, first of all, it says, leads this host of captives. In other words, think of it this way. Our king goes off and wins a victory. And he comes back and we throw a giant parade. Some of you guys just saw they had the big parade for the World Series champions, all these kind of things. It's a pretty normal thing. Um, and what they do is this, this, the, the conquering king would parade through the city and with him, he would lead these captives. In other words, the people he had rescued and set free would come with them in this parade. Well, who's that in this particular text? Well, that would be us. That our king has gone and vanquished our enemy in Satan. He's defeated sin and he's set us free from the curse of sin and death. But he doesn't just do that. The picture also means that this king is coming back, not just with the people that he had set free in this battle, but he's coming back with spoils. He's coming back with treasures. He's coming back with loot, you might say. And the idea is this. The city here is now benefiting and sharing the gifts, the, the fruits, the spoils of war that the king has brought back. And so too for us. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins to set us free from sin. 
Jesus didn't just pay the penalty for us and then ascend into heaven and now he's just in like waiting mode, waiting for that day when we either pass from this earth or when he returns, but he's given us gifts. The Bible teaches that, or Jesus himself teaches that when he was about to leave the earth, when he knew his day was coming, he told the disciples, hey, listen, when I leave, it's actually a good thing because I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Bible teaches clearly that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three, one God in three bodies, if you will, or three entities. And so Jesus ascends into heaven, as the scriptures say, but he has now given gifts, and the Bible teaches that he sent his Holy Spirit here. That's where people get weird. Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost stuff, what does all that mean? That stuff starts to kind of freak me out a little bit, Jeff, and I've seen some weirdness, man. You can go on YouTube and see all sorts of stuff done in the name of the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to go online, go back into the archives to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at some of the stuff that we looked at there. Um, But I want to share with you just a brief overview of exactly what is it that the Bible teaches here. Because here's something else that's really interesting, you Bible scholars, that that you might want to make note of this. Paul's saying here, hey, just like Psalm 68 says that our king went and won a victory and he comes back and he's brought gifts now that everyone would share. Here's something that's really interesting. The passage that he pulls from, Psalm 68, that's a passage that was used really frequently in Jewish customs at that time in Jewish religious worship. And it was used in particular on a day, a time, a festival called Pentecost. And at Pentecost, what they would do is they would celebrate when Moses went up Mount Sinai and God gave Moses the law. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The law, the law that we break, the law that we can't possibly live up to. But if you know your Bible, you know that when Acts comes along, in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends into heaven, something different comes on Pentecost. And that is what? The Holy Spirit comes. See, it may be weird, it may be new to some of you, but it is an absolute reality that God has not left us. Oh, Jesus has ascended into heaven, but the Holy Spirit is alive and well and with us. It's the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you as you're going through life before you get saved. He's wooing you. He's convicting you of sin. He's showing you the folly of your ways, but he's also calling you to him. On that day that maybe someone was sharing the gospel with you, be it a pastor at a church service or someone in person, when your heart was beating and you just felt that pulling, that yearning inside you, like this is true. The scriptures, the things they're showing me are true. I want to believe in Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit working in your life, opening your eyes to the reality of who God is and calling you to him. But once you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit doesn't just like bail on you and go on to the next guy. The Spirit's still there. He's still alongside us. Now, the Holy Spirit is empowering us to to do things for the kingdom, to be able to serve God in certain ways. He's molding us. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says that he's molding us closer and closer into the image of Christ. So it's the Holy Spirit that changes us. If you look back on your life and you go, I've been saved for 20 years, the you at day one, hopefully, and the you at 20 years later are two different guys. That's not because you got your stuff together and made it all the way. That's because the Holy Spirit led you, taught you, helped you understand God's will for your life. 
helped you understand what God wants from you, what God has created you for, and then has empowered you to actually do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God is constantly involved in our lives, molding us and shaping us. And the Bible says that on that day, when we see him, speaking of Jesus, we will be like him. But in, that, in, the, in the meantime, we're being molded into that. It's interesting, even the Apostle Paul here, he talks about in verse 13 and verse 14, until we all attain the unity of faith. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Paul, the Apostle who wrote this, is including himself in here. In other words, he's saying, I'm not done yet, you're not done yet, we aren't done yet. The Spirit is molding us and shaping us. And so the Holy Spirit is really active in our lives. But, but it's more even than that. The Bible tells us and uses the language here of gifts, that Jesus has given each of us different gifts. Three different places in the scriptures, there's a list, if you will, of spiritual gifts is what people call them, or the gifts of the spirit, potentially, whatever, whatever Bible version you might have, it varies here and there. But there's three different places in scripture where it talks about the gifts, the thing that the Holy Spirit does in our life to equip us to be able to live a life for Jesus. So in this one, for example, in Ephesians 4, he says in verse 11, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. So what are those? Well, first of all, he gives us the idea of apostles. Apostles, it's like an, it's messengers. It's a special envoy of messengers taught and trained, if you will, by Jesus himself. We would consider this our founding fathers of Christianity, the apostles. Then he goes next and he says, prophets. A prophet isn't just someone who tells the future. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of someone else. So the prophets are those who just speak the word of God. In our day and age, when someone stands before you and is teaching the scriptures in a setting like this, I would hope that they are actually exercising the gift of prophecy because they're speaking what God's word actually says. We have God's word here the complete revelation of it. So even as I'm standing here before you, speaking God's word, that would be considered moving or operating, if you will, in a prophetic gifting. You are speaking God's word. Others, it says evangelists. Evangelists, those who are going forward and bringing the good news of God's grace. So not just a Billy Graham type guy. It doesn't mean that you go and stand before giant audiences of thousands, but just people who faithfully are gifted to just declare the good news of the gospel to other people. There's shepherds and pastors. Depending on your translation, it'll either say shepherds or pastors there. Those are just leaders who are charged with care and leadership of a particular flock. You might also call them elders. So as pastor at Heritage, I'm charged with caring for the people at Heritage. The elders here and the elder team that we're actually building up even right now will be charged with caring for you. Whether that be looking out for you, may, might look like visiting at the hospital. It might be making sure the things that we're teaching here are beneficial to you as a people. It might be making sure even the services are, are oriented in such a way that serve you best. I mean, it can look a lot of different ways, but pastors are to care for. They're shepherds. They take care of the sheep. And then finally on this list, there's teachers. Teachers are pretty self-explanatory. I mean, we're used to those, right? Teachers are just those who, who teach. They impart knowledge to someone else. That's what's listed here in Ephesians chapter 4. But there's others. Romans chapter 12, for example, adds service. In Romans chapter 12, it speaks of service. It just means that someone who is just gifted in this area of service. So th the idea would be this. Everyone is able to serve someone else, right? Amen? 
but some of you live for it. You know what I mean? Like you are in, you're just infused with energy and joy. This is what you do, and you just love reaching out and serving someone else. You, you use your gifts, whether that be your, your physical energy, helping someone move, or helping someone clean their lawn, or whatever the case may be. You love serving other people. Another one is exhortation. Exhortation means you just encourage and support others. You want to see people doing what they do best. You want to see people succeeding. You want to see people thriving in life. And you want to see people understand who they are in Christ and then able to live that out on a day-to-day basis. And so you come alongside people and you encourage them and you exhort them. He adds giving. That's a spiritual gift. Did you know that? Like some people love to give. And you're good at it. It doesn't even just mean financially, though that's definitely a part of it. And I think God has really graced a lot of people in that area because he knows you're going to be faithful to do that. He's gifted you in that area. But some of you, you're just givers. You just love giving and blessing other people in that way. He includes in Romans 12, leadership. Some of you are just gifted in leading and motivating and organizing others. And now I should clarify too, by the way, it does look different for different people. Paul, even in Ephesians 4, made the comment in verse 7 that a grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what I mean by that is this. Some of you are really gifted leaders and you could lead a massive CEO type level organization where you had hundreds of people under you, maybe thousands. And some of you in that setting might be completely overwhelmed, but you could sit down with a group of five or 10 guys and lead them, care for them, teach them, exhort them. Like you could lead a group like that. It looks different for different people. Some people are really good teachers and can stand in front of thousands of people and teach and write books and teach people all over the place. Other people would lose it in a setting like that, but one-on-one can sit down and do the really good, deep, hard work of discipleship and just teach someone what the Bible says over a cup of coffee on a Tuesday morning. It looks different for different people. And leadership is very much like that. And then Romans 12 also includes mercy. People of mercy, they just, they want to understand, they feel. When someone else is hurting, they feel it too. And they've just got to get there with them and associate themselves with what is going on in their life. They just need to be around people and want to help people that are going through difficulties. And then finally, there's another list in 1 Corinthians 12. I told you when we were teaching there, we went through much greater detail on this. Um, And 1 Corinthians 12 has some of the ones that can lead into weirdness. So I would encourage you, go listen to that. We don't have time to chase that rabbit trail today. But just quickly, 1 Corinthians 12 includes wisdom. Some people are just wise. There's, there's some men at this church. Um, I include actually, and we as a staff have all identified this before in talking with him. Um, Jeremy Neff, who's an assistant pastor here, um, who's a, just a really gifted biblical counselor. The guy just seems to have a lot of wisdom. Like when Jeremy talks, when we're sitting around talking about things, Jeremy just always seems to have the right words in some of these situations. And there's a lot of you guys in this, in this congregation. There are people here in this room that you're just wise. And sometimes that can be supernatural, like you just know exactly what to do in that given moment. And sometimes it's a little more natural. You're just a guy who's just filled with wisdom. You've learned through life. You've learned from other teachers, and you're just wise. Um, Also, there's knowledge. Some of you are just smart. Like you just know stuff. 
Um, I love the fact that there's a lot of you in this congregation. And actually, I got to tell you, I love it. And it also drives me nuts because you make me study harder than I want to. You know what I mean? Because I know that there are people in this congregation that I can't just take a teaching and go, ah, it's a little soft and we'll just lob that out there. It's no big deal. That's going to be like an overhand lob in tennis. That thing's coming back at me at like 100 miles an hour if I just take it easy. Like I have to study. There are people here that they are just knowledgeable. Then there's also faith. People just have a strong confidence in God. And they're able to step out in faith and exercise that, trust God in what he's leading them to do. Others, discernment. My mom had this and it drove me crazy. Discernment, just the, uh, the ability to just discern. Something's just not right here. Something's off here. My mom had it with regards to every girlfriend that I ever had growing up. And that drove me crazy. She's not a good girl. Stop it, she's hot. You know, it was like that. Um, and it drove me crazy. But discernment, the idea of what's right, wrong, what's godly, what's not, to be able to test the spirits and say there's something wrong here and to be able to understand that. Healing, that's, that gets into some weirdness, doesn't it? All of a sudden, everybody's thinking of Benny Hinn and things like this. But, but listen, it, it can go both ways. Look, I have seen people, my grandmother was one of them, who God has supernaturally healed. He just has and a lot of you, I see heads shaking already. A lot of you guys have seen that as well. Um, but, but you know what else? There's doctors. There's nurses. There's people that God has gifted in a way that looks really practical. But when you really look at the grand scheme of history or the, 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 the big picture of history and even the opportunities that we have in this world, the fact that you were born into a place with the resources, the intelligence level, the drive, the fortitude to be able to go through nursing school or go through doctor school, who do you think that is that equipped you to even be able to do that? That is a gift from God. And so you can be working in the hospital as a doctor and exercising and working in that area for the glory of God. Also, miracles, supernatural. Yeah, I don't believe that there is a supernatural gift of healing or gift of miracles that's given to one man. We don't see that anywhere in scripture other than Jesus Christ. Um, but, but, he, but it happens. I mean, some of you can tell stories of things. I could tell you a couple of stories of different things that we just don't have time to today that I, there's just no explanation of other than God moved. And he might have moved in those cases through people that by his spirit, he empowered to address and be involved and work through a specific situation. And then finally, tongues and interpretation, which can look supernatural if you're talking about the gift of tongues. We dealt with this back in 1 Corinthians 12, so I don't have a lot of time, and I know that's one that people really weird out over. But sometimes it can also, I still believe, can even look completely natural. There's a guy in our church, he speaks like 15, 16 different languages and does not have to learn them. He just gets it. Like, you know how some people can like look at a piano and it just makes sense and they just play? That's language to this guy. And he's worked even in the military as an interpreter. He can just understand dialects and how words work and all this kind of stuff. And the guy's just gifted. And now he's literally studying to be able to use that gift as a pastor so that he can spread the word of God in who knows what circumstance or situation that he'll be in. That's a gift from God. That doesn't just, you don't just get that. You have to be gifted to be able to be a guy like that. I don't, I don't even have English mastered. But this guy does. So, so these are the, the lists, if you will, of the gifts of the Spirit that are given us in Scripture. Now, uh, uh, one, one thing real quickly. I don't believe that that's an all-encompassing list. I really don't. 
I think when you look at the context of how these things are built up and how they're laid out, I don't think in any of these cases Paul's trying to say, these are the only areas that you can be gifted. And so figure out which one of these is yours and operate in that. You've got to find which one of these is yours. I don't believe that. I know there are some that might disagree with me. Um, but the idea is this. Everyone has been gifted in these different areas. And now let's go back to the context of what we're talking about here, because that's where we're really going to camp out today. I know I've just, I've flown through so much stuff so fast. I was even telling Jeremy today, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this teaching because I know we could, we could spend weeks on this stuff and I just don't want to. And then also, I, I don't want to skip over things when there might be people that are new to some of this stuff and it leaves them hanging. So I, I really encourage you, if there's questions that you have on this stuff, to contact us. Let's get together and have coffee or, or with me or one of the other pastors. But, but here's what I want to really camp out on because I believe this is what Paul's intention is with this text. And it has to do with the context. The context here is body life. The idea is not about the individual. Here's your gift. I used to think that. I used to think that God gave me a gift so that I can feel good about this. I can go operate in the gift of teaching and that encourages me. Like I feel like, um, like I'm doing what I'm created to do. When I was sitting in a computer screen as an engineer, I felt like every day was a waste. Like I felt like I lived for the weekend because I didn't want to do this job anymore. And then on the weekend, I dreaded Monday. And it was this constant cycle. There was never, I, I never felt like I had joy. And then someone grabbed me and said, hey, why don't you get involved here at the church? And called me in, said, hey, why don't you start teaching kids? <sighs> come on, man, teaching kids? Nope, not doing that. No, come on, give it a try. And you know what I found? Like, I found peace in that. I found joy in that. I would work through the week just to get the paycheck. What I was living for was like, when do I get to teach next? When do I get to hang out with these kids? When do I get to do this? And so I had found like some purpose in my life. And so for the longest time, I always would approach these idea of the gifts of the Spirit in the same way. Guys, here's the purpose and joy that I found in my life in serving Jesus, and you can have this too. But do you see how that becomes a really sort of self-centered way of actually looking at this? And in the context of the teaching, what's Paul doing? He's saying, hey, you're unified. Oh, there's diversity there's diversity of gifts, but we're unified in the body. And remember what we talked about? Every organ, every body part in the human body exists for the benefit of another part. Hand grabs food to feed mouth. Teeth chew food to go down throat so we don't choke. Esophagus brings the food to the stomach. Stomach breaks the food down. By the way, doctors, don't kill me on this. I don't know how all this stuff works. Kidneys, all those things are the same to me. They just do stuff. But, but do you understand what I'm saying? Lungs bring oxygen in, gets into the blood supply, carries that to the parts of the body that we need it. Like there's always a purpose beyond the, that initial organ. There's a function beyond itself. And the only thing that body part, if you will, that is completely self-serving, if your body has anything in it that they would say this is a self-serving body, that's what we call that cancer. It just feeds itself and grows. It's, a, it's an illness. It's an alien. It's not part of the body design. And so to take the approach to this idea of the spiritual gifts as this is, I got to find my gift so that I am fulfilled. That's not exactly the emphasis here. The idea is, Luke, you have a role to play within the body for us. It's not about you. It's about everyone else in this room. Now, let me show you something that's really interesting about this. Okay. Um, when, when, when I was making that transition from engineering 
and from, from doing that into being a pastor. People would use this phrase all the time that you've heard before, and I would hear it all the time. They would say that, Jeff, that you're, you're going into the ministry. You heard that said before? He's going into the ministry. And I understand what that means because we, we were talking vocational, really. I mean, for a living, I was no longer going to be an engineer. Now this is what I was going to do for a living. So I understand he's going into the ministry. But there's a problem with that. The problem is, is that phrase, saying it in that way, would lead anyone to assume there are those who are in the ministry and there are those who are not. There are those who are called to go serve God in these ways and there are those who are not. And so if you are not, you do something else. But if you're called into the ministry, then you're serving God and you're serving God's people over here in this way and there's a delineation between the two. And here's something interesting. First of all, please know, That is a 100% biblically inaccurate view of what the Christian life looks like. It is absolutely unbiblical, totally unbiblical. But here's something that's really interesting. It's based, that belief, that system is based on an assumption biblically, and I believe an erroneous one. I'll give you an example. We teach here, when when anyone teaches here from the stage or from the pulpit, we teach out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. That's the one we use, the ESV. Um, We don't care what version you use. People ask me, which Bible should I buy? Um, I, I say, buy the one that you'll read. If there's one that you just feel like, man, I just, I love to read the ESV, then by all means, read the ESV. No, I'm a King James guy. This is what I was born with and the language makes sense and I memorized these verses as a kid in King James and that's what I'm, that's mine. Then by all means, read the King James. I have basically all of them and, and I love all of them. I, and, and now I understand the differences between them and I use them appropriately. So like for example, the message or the New Living Translation and some of those, those are fantastic reads in a devotional setting. They're fantastic Um, But I'm not going to come up here and try to teach a verse-by-verse Bible study out of the message because it's not a verse-by-verse translation. It's an interpretation. You understand? Um, And so for us, we chose the English Standard Version here to teach to because it seems to be, by most accounts, the most word-for-word accurate yet readable. So it's easy to read. But, But there's other settings. If I was reading poetry, man, the King James nails the Psalms, doesn't it? So, so know what you have, but we teach from the English Standard Version of the Bible. The King James Version is the Bible that I grew up with, and until several years ago, was probably the one that I read most of all, except for a little window of time when I was in the NIV. I repented of that and moved on. But I'm sorry, I'm just joking. NIV is great. NIV is great. But in the King James Version, there's an error. And you go, the Bible is not, there's no error, Jeff, watch what you say. And some of you might be King James only people where you're like, I am never coming to this church again. Let me explain what I mean. In the original text that were given to us, there's no punctuation. When you look at the original manuscripts of the biblical text, there are no punctuations. There's no commas, there's no periods, there's no explanation points. And so anytime you read that, even paragraphs, even the numbers, when we break verses down, that wasn't there. It was never written that way. It was blocks of text. Now, translators who put our Bibles together just want to help us. And it's helpful, right? I mean, can you imagine if you just had one big, long scroll of text and someone said, turn to John 3.16, you'd be looking forever trying to find that. 
So it's helpful, but we have to remember it's interpretive. Someone read through it and decided this is probably where the break needs to occur. And in the text that we're in, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, there is a translational adjustment with regards to a comma that a translator doing the King James Version put in that I think not only is wrong, but it has changed in many ways the course of how people look at this. And I'm going to put it up on the screen for you, okay? Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12. This is the King James Version. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the work of perfecting the saints, comma. Say it with me. Comma. Come on now. Well, you're awake. Comma. Okay, let's read this again. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for edifying of the body of Christ. Nice. A couple of you. So here's the problem with that. This comma right here changed the way a lot of people who are biblical scholars and interpreters looked at this text. And the way a lot of people started looking at this text was this. Hey, God has given us some prophets. God's given us some evangelists. He's given us some pastors. And he's given us some teachers. And here's what their job is. Their job is for the perfecting of the saints. They do the work of the ministry. And for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what it became was this part right here, these three things separated by commas became the job description of the people listed above. Do you see where the problem is in that? What it means is this. If Jeff's in the ministry and someone else isn't, then Jeff has a job to do. And Jeff's job is the perfecting of the saints to do the work of the ministry, all the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. This is the roots for what became known as clericalism. And it's the idea of this. Ministry is to be done by the gifted professionals who are called into ministry. That's our job. So because I am, if you will, a professional, and some of you could snicker when I say that, but because, because I am, if you will, a professional, that means that my job is to do those three things. And one of them is, it's my job to do the work of the ministry. That's not the intent of the text anywhere. Because the overall thrust is this. Hey, we are one body, Paul says. We are one spirit, one Lord. This is who we are. But then in verse 7, he says, But grace was given to, how many? Say it with me out loud. Each one of us. Everyone has been given a specific grace, gifting, talent towards ministry. And When you look at it differently, now if you have the ESV look at it, it says this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see the difference? See, clericalism is this. Clericalism is the idea that the professionals are the one who do the ministry. And it's promoted largely by two different groups. It's it's based in a lot of ways actually on an Old Testament model. Because in the Old Testament you had the priest who worked in the temple. No one else did. And, And... that translated into Roman Catholicism, especially in early church history. You had the clergy, the pastors, the ministers, the professionals, the holy men, and then you had the laity, those who weren't called. And the professionals did the work of the ministry. The laity, you just attended. You just come to service, show up, 
pay your tithe, that's important, and do those kind of things. But, but the work of the ministry was actually done by the professionals. But Paul says really clearly here in the text that he has given these people in these different roles to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what that means is this. My job as a pastor and as a teacher in this particular moment is not to do ministry work for you, but to equip you to do ministry work yourselves. Do you see the difference? We're not one minister or a small group of ministers and everyone else, but this is what the church has largely looked like throughout the history of Christianity. The elite few who can do the work of the ministry and then everyone else. And the two groups that tend to promote that are either clergy who want all the power, who want all the control. No, we, we do this. We make the decisions. We know what we're doing. You guys don't really know. We're in the ministry. You're not. So just keep giving us the money, but we'll take care of that. It's been very much uh, used by people to maintain power. But, but it's also trumpeted by lazy Christians who just don't want to do the work of the ministry. They can just go, oh, I just come and I tithe and Jeff does it. Jeremy will do it. They'll make sure people are cared for and stuff. I just get to come. What do the scriptures look like for us? I mean, in the New Testament, after Jesus ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit down to the church, all of that changes. In the Old Testament model, when the priest did all the work, you would go to the priest for confession of sin. In the New Testament model, the Bible tells us in James 5, 16, confess your sins not to the priest in the temple, not to the professional clergy. Who does it say that we confess our sins to in the New Testament? Each other. Why? That was never part of the program in the Old Testament. You went to the priest. Well, Paul would say, no, you still go to the priest. Okay, Paul, that doesn't make sense. You're telling me confess sins to one another, but you're saying we still go to the priest? Yeah, it's called now the priesthood of believers. Peter teaches in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That we now, our identity as the redeemed people of God, co-joint heirs, if you will, with Jesus, the Holy Spirit has now been given to us that we might now be on program with the kingdom of God. We are joint heirs with him and we are now all in the ministry. In the New Testament, every single time the word ministry or ministers comes up, it's always speaking about the church as a whole. Now, we call ministers the preachers. The New Testament never does that. The New Testament says everyone in this room is a minister. And everyone in this room has been given a gift that they might serve one another. Now, here's where it really gets important. And this is the part we're going to bear down on. We're almost done. Because you go, okay, fine. I've been given a gift. Fine. Um, and, and you're telling me it's, it's not for me. It's to serve others. Fine. But here's the deal, Jeff. I'm busy. Like I have a job. And I know you get to play church all week. But, but I... I have a job. I have a real job, Jeff, some might say. I've actually had people say that to me. Yeah, but what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, I know, but like the rest of the week. <laughs> Fish. No, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. It's not true. But, 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 but seriously, so there'll be some that, that say, look, okay, so you've, I've got a gift and you're saying God desires that I serve in this kind of a way, but, but I'm busy, Jeff. Like, what? How, why should I do that? 
I got kids in soccer and kids in ballet and kids in taekwondo. And I got, now you got that stinking Awanas thing on Wednesday nights that my kids are dragging me to, Jeff. Thanks for that. And you got, like, there's always all these things going on and I'm busy. Why should I do all of this? And you're just trying to jump up volunteers, aren't you, Jeff? But here's the reality of it. And this is what I want you to be able to look at, okay? Look at verses 14 through 16. The purpose of these gifts This is Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. So that we may no longer be children. You've not just been gifted for the sake of everyone else, but your gifts, as we bring them into the body as a whole, are here so that we, all of us, you and me, may no longer be children. The Bible teaches this. When someone becomes a follower of Christ, they say something's happened. And the phrase that's been given is that we have been born again. That's what the scriptures say. But in the same way that a child who is born is not born into full maturity, so too a Christian. No one is born again into mature Christianhood. We are infants. Paul would say babies. And the idea is that we would grow up. Look at 1 Peter 2 says this, so put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And 1 Corinthians 3 says, But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. The Bible tells us this, you've been saved, that's great, but you are now starting a whole new journey and you're an infant. There's two ramifications for that right away. Number one is this, and especially those of you that have been in the church for a long time, know this one. If Paul guarantees us that there are newborns in the church, then we shouldn't be super surprised when we see immaturity amongst ourselves, right? Like sometimes we just expect people to be done on day one. And we expect people to look like us. We might be walking with Jesus 30 years and another guy's been walking with Jesus for three and sometimes we can look down our nose at that person like, why can't they get it? They're three. You would not look at your three-year-old and say, why can't you get this math problem here? I mean, it's, it's just calculus. It's been around forever. You would never do that. So Paul makes it really clear. The church is full of immature infants. So don't be shocked. People, some of those church people drive me crazy. I know, me too. And I drive a lot of them crazy. It's who we are. But here's the thing. Scripture also tells us, while we should have grace towards other in their growth and in their immaturity, we should never be okay with immaturity in our own lives. We are called to grow up. We are called to grow. And he says, I don't want you to be babies anymore. And so, so think about it. What, what does he mean by that? Well, babies, number one, are not very discerning. It says here that, that we would be uh, no longer children tossed and fro by waves, or tossed to and fro by waves, carried around by wind of doctrine. Babies, you can tell a baby anything. Babies believe in Santa Claus. Babies believe in Easter Bunny. You can tell babies anything, and they will totally believe that because they're not real discerning. They're not really able to discern. That's true and that's not. They just pretty much go with whatever you tell them in any given moment. Do you realize how many Christians are exactly the same way? 
Do you know that every book sold at christianbook.com or an evangel bookstore, not every book that's in that Christian bookstore is a book you need to be reading. Some of these are books that we should grow up and understand the scriptures and be able to discern. This isn't right. The fact that prosperity gospel churches are mega churches in our country and are raping people financially left and right is stunning, but not surprising if you understand people are just immature and they don't get it and they're not being taught. Man, grow up. How do you do that? Because there's people in this room that do have understanding of scripture, that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. There's people that you can be in community with so you can grow in those things and become discerning. Babies can't tell what's good and what's, what's poison, but a mature person can. And Paul wants us to understand the difference. Also, babies are horribly self-centered, aren't they? Horribly self-centered. Feed me. Well, I'm eating right now. Can you just wait? No. Babies will poop anywhere. They don't care if you're in the middle of a thing. They don't care if you're shopping. They have their own schedules. They will sleep when they want to sleep. And if they can't sleep or they can't eat or they don't get what they want, what do they do? They pitch a fit. Just pitch a fit. It's unbelievable how selfish babies are, right? It really is. They cry when they don't get their way. That's not what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to be people who aren't constantly living for self, but we're in body life. We are here that others might benefit from us, that we might serve one another, not demanding our own way all the time. That's what got us in trouble in the Garden of Eden. When we grow up, we are no longer constantly focusing on ourselves. Babies also are super unsteady. I've, I've looked in our baby room in there. I've seen some of those guys. They can't stand they fall over all the time. It's pathetic, really. If the future of basketball in Medford, it is certainly not found in our baby room. I'm telling you right now, I haven't seen a single one of them ever jump. They just fall over all the time, completely unsteady. So are we. Isn't our walk with God often really unsteady, tossed to and fro? Like Sometimes we worship Jesus and we're happy and content in him when things are going good. And then something happens that doesn't go our way and we do that pitch a fit thing. And so suddenly, sometimes, sometimes we're close with God and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we've got a handle on this thing we feel like and sometimes we don't and we're completely unsteady. We call it the Christian walk, but I love, I've heard Matt Chandler say this before. The reality of, of it is, I don't think very many of us at all are gonna be crossing the finish line into heaven like this at a full sprint. Most of us are tripping over the threshold getting in. And that's the truth of it. But God wants to grow us up. God wants to grow us up. And here's the reality of it. Listen, Paul makes it really clear in this text. You will never achieve spiritual maturity on your own. You will never do it. You will never achieve spiritual maturity, what God has designed for you by simply being an attender and letting the clergy do all the work. You've been gifted. And part of your exercising those gifts is a growing process for you as well. And in serving one another, you start to learn. You're serving someone else in those gifts and you find out that you're not, you don't got your eyes on you the whole time. You're serving someone else and you start learning, man, I'm learning the Bible. I, I learn more to teach you guys than I could possibly ever teach you. I mean, 
what you find out is as you're serving in the capacity that God has designed you to serve in, you will grow up. But you've got to have community to do that. Who else are you going to teach? And if you have the gift of teaching, but you're struggling through a season, you need that person with the gift of mercy to come alongside and help you. You need the person with the gift of faith to be able to come and encourage you to make sure that you don't lose your way. You cannot, and I mean this as strongly as I can say it, you cannot possibly become a mature Christian without involvement in Christian community. And that means way more than church attendance. Now here's the reality of it for us. We gotta get better at that. It becomes so easy for us to put in a whole lot of time during the week just getting ready for the Sunday service. Because it's a big thing. There's a lot of time and effort and planning and study and prayer that goes into that. But it's really easy for us, even as a staff, to get so focused on getting those things done that we don't even realize that we've never taken the time to come alongside someone to prepare them to do the work of the ministry. So, so as a church and as your pastor, I'm confessing before you, we've got to get better at that. One of our focuses on this upcoming year is to create a better assimilation process so that when someone starts coming to this church, they can get grafted in, grow in their own gifts, take someone from a brand new believer to an elder, if that's what God calls them to do. We've got to get better at that. But at the same time, too, you've heard the phrase, like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I'm begging you, grow up. Allow God to use you in the context of the family of faith. Find a community group and get involved. When a men's Bible study or a retreat or ladies' events going on, go. And have the humility about you to be able to say, hey, I'm new here, I don't know anybody, or to reach out. The men's retreat, I told you guys last week, I was a little bit disappointed because the attendance wasn't quite as high as our normal men's retreats really are. It turned out to be such a great thing because we ended up meeting people that we would have never met before, and at least one person, more than that, I think, but at least one person said to me, I've been coming here for, I I was like, so you're pretty new, right? Uh, Two years oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I felt guilty. Like, I don't know this guy. He's been around here forever. And he was like, no, I just, I just come. And I felt like I, I've got to step outside of myself and find a way to get plugged in because I don't know anyone and I'm not known. And, and listen, we need you. I need you. I need to learn from you. I need to gain from you because there's gifts that I have and there's a lot more that I don't. And I want all that God has for me in life. Don't you? Are you, are you content to just sit? Or do you trust that God has an incredible plan for your life? When you look at the reality of the cross and what Jesus did for you, do you not trust that he wants to take you somewhere amazing? Then let's go. Let's join in that. Let, let's, to a greater and greater degree, as the text says, let's learn and grow together and get past our immaturities and do a better and better job as a church in mirroring or picturing the actual body of Christ. He's calling us to this. And so how do we do that? You, you just got to step out. Like I said, we're going to work harder on that. We're, we're redoing the website now and some of that kind of stuff. We're trying to find avenues by which you can get a hold of us, that we can plug you into areas, that we can do better discipleship, do better teaching, do better training to help you find lanes to serve in. We've got a lot of growth in that area to do, but I'm begging you, hey, step out. 
shoot an email to the church, call the church office, just say, look, I, I got to do that. I've been coming for a long time. I'm not involved anywhere. Where can I serve? And then, and this is a big one, be open to whatever God might open, send your way. Man, the last thing in the world I wanted to do is go teach a bunch of kids. You have no idea. Every time I teach you up here, I'm using something I learned teaching kids. That's not to call you childish, though we just said we're immature, amen? But it's true. So see what God has. Stop taking the view that I'm mature, I'm this done thing. No, maybe God wants you to do something as simple as just setting up a chair. But what you find out is you find brotherhood amongst these guys as you're doing stuff. That you're working alongside people, that you can get to know another guy. You find out that guy's struggling in something. Hey, let's pray for him. Or you, you yourself go through something, they find out, and suddenly they're the ones showing up at the hospital with stuff. I mean, this is what body life is all about. See, I don't know what my gifting is. Um, there's a couple of options for you. You could get a hold of me or one of the other pastors. We could sit down, talk through some of these things. If you're in community, really, I think the best way of finding out is just talking to the people around you. Like, what, what do you see in me? They see it. If you're known, if people know you, they'll know what you're gifted at. They'll be able to point you in that direction. Um, and, and then if not, if you're striking out on that and you're just like, I don't know what to do, try anything. Just try. All right, I'll try the kids wing, Jeff, or I'll try this, or I'll, I'll get involved in some sort of mercy ministry, or I'll volunteer over here, whatever the case may be. Try something. If it doesn't fit, try the next thing on. You don't own it forever. It's fine. But see what the Lord will do with you. But I'm assuring you, listen, there's joy in serving Jesus. I know you're busy. I know that. I know life is complicated. I know you have jobs. And I know that jobs nowadays don't end the way they used to. Bosses reach us by cell phone and text messages and emails. I, I get all that. But the temptation is to think it's just another job that's just going to bury me even more. But Jesus says, happy are you when you do this. You might just find the thing that saves you from all the misery and drudgery and pressure and stress of every other area of your life is the thing that God's calling to. And for some of you, you might find he doesn't want you doing that job anymore. You might be up here next time. Scary and so good. Amen? Will you stand with me? I'm really encouraged to listen. Please, if God is touching your heart or pulling at your heart, if, if you're like, that's me, don't walk out of here and let this end. Don't let it fall to the floor. Grab somebody. Call somebody. Reach out. Find a huddle group. If you don't know which one, we'll help you find one. But I'm begging you. Let's grow together. Let's do a better job at being the body of Christ that we might learn from one another and grow into maturity. Amen? God, I pray your blessing on everyone that's leaving here, Lord. This, um, I know this was a life-changing thing for me, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that it would be for others as well. That they might understand that you have a purpose for every single life that's here. And so I pray, God, that you would give us, Lord, the, uh, the wisdom and the energy to do it. To step out. To get beyond ourselves and fears and busyness and schedules. But to see what you might have for us. To serve the body to love others as you have loved us, to promote the gospel. I pray, God, that you would just grow our church, that we might be a better representation of you, Jesus, tomorrow than we were yesterday. I pray, God, you would open up avenues of service and communication. I pray, God, that you would open up new community groups and new areas of community that we might grow and learn from one another. And I pray, God, that we, all of us, everyone here, would grow up into exactly what you've designed us. 
I thank you, Lord, for your mercy on our life. I thank you that we can do this in response to your gospel as an act of worship, not earning affection, but realizing that you've already given us your love. And now, Lord, may we just step out and serve you as a way of reflecting that love to others. I pray, God, for everyone here as they leave, be with them this week at work, at school. May they carry the glory of God with them everywhere they go. And may we realize right now as we walk out of this room, every single person in here is going into the ministry. And may we serve others with that mindset. And these things we ask in your precious, holy name. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Hey, I love you guys. Have a-